You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. We begin with another horrifying discovery of a body at a vacant home in East Vancouver. Police believe it's too soon to know if it's related to an earlier gruesome crime near the same property, but residents of the East Vancouver neighborhood are frustrated by the condition of the home. Krista Dow reports. For a third straight day, Vancouver police officers searched this large property for clues. The body was discovered Wednesday night on Renfrew Street and 8th Avenue by someone walking by. Preliminary evidence did indicate that this was a suspicious death. Police say it's unclear when the man was killed or how long he had been there. The crime scene consisting of about five vacant homes set to be redeveloped, spanning a full city block. Safe to walk by late at, uh, at night and during the day too because you see people that don't belong at all in the area. Well, police tell us they know who the victim is, but have yet to notify next of kid. Now, this is not the first time police have responded to this area. Back in November, a major police investigation was focusing on this block right here. Now, police say that search was related to the killing of a 30-year-old man. The victim, Kevin Liu, his murder believed to have been violent. Police say he was attacked at this abandoned home but it's unclear if the two homicides are connected. Nothing's off the table at this point. Our investigators will be looking at everything, including that file, to see if they're linked. The heavy police presence has neighbors on edge once again. They say the property is unsafe and has become a magnet for criminal activity. They'd like to see the houses demolished. What are you waiting for? What does it take? Another human being to be dumped there or be killed? That's not right and it's not safe for us. We've reached out to the developer, EptaCorp, but haven't heard back. Meanwhile, the city says the owner is responsible for ensuring the building is kept secure, adding the chief building official may order the demolition of a structure if it is unsafe. The city says there have been no complaints about untidiness, nor has the building been ordered demolished. We deserve to feel safe, and we deserve to know what's going on. Krista Dow, Global News. Police are investigating a daytime shooting in Burnaby that left one man injured. It happened around 2 p.m. yesterday near Halifax Street and Woodway Place in the Brentwood area. Burnaby RCMP say the shooting took place inside a parked vehicle. A 20-year-old man was treated in hospital. His injuries are not life-threatening. Mounties believe the shooting was targeted. No arrests have been made and witnesses are being asked to call Burnaby RCMP. Residents of a Nanaimo neighborhood have had enough and are demanding the government do something about rising crime in their area. Whose park? Our park! Whose park? Our park! The residents say they've been the victims of escalating assaults, knife attacks and fires. They say many people are afraid to leave their homes, walk around the neighborhood or use the neighborhood park. We're only two blocks wide, but they have basically um, encased us with safe injection sites, methadone clinics, um, you know, everything like that. Our park here has been hijacked by them. Um, it's just not a safe place for kids anymore. Government policy is obviously failing. They, they, they're doubling down on methods they've used in the past that have not worked. And the more they double down on them, like decriminalization of drugs, that type of thing, uh, is actually the problem keeps getting worse. So how far do you go until you have to make a change in what you're doing? 
Nanaimo RCMP didn't want to go on camera but confirm in a statement that the Knob Hill community has experienced a significant increase in social disorder. The Provincial Public Safety Ministry says Nanaimo was the site of one of its repeat violent offending intervention hubs and staff are in the process of meeting with various agencies and programs to best deal with the situation. We're learning more about a frightening bike theft we showed you a few days ago from a witness who shot the video and posted it online. Vancouver police say on June 11th in the afternoon, witnesses saw a suspect cutting a bike lock from an electric bike near Camby and West 7th Avenue. When witnesses tried to prevent him from stealing it, he threatened them with pliers and allegedly pulled out a knife and threatened a witness. The man who shot the video says he was just trying to help. You can see in the video that I, I, I take this, these pliers out of his hands. Um, soon after that, he kind of gets frazzled and he goes into his bag that he had. And that's when he pulls out a, a switchblade type knife. Small knife, but, you know, pulls it out, switches it out. That's where you see everybody sort of back off in the video. Um, in my mind, I, I wanted to do more at that time. I still thought I could. But then I have all these other thoughts coming in at the same time. You know, my girlfriend is also there. I know she'll be mad at me if I attempt anything. Vancouver police say the suspect was found and arrested the next day. But the bike had been stripped of its electric components and was unrideable. The VPD says it'll be recommending charges. In the North Okanagan, Vernon RCMP are investigating after a man was found with serious burns early this morning at a park near the city's downtown. Emergency personnel were called to Justice Park at about 6.30 a.m. when a man was rushed to hospital with life-threatening injuries. Police will only say no determination has been made as to what caused the man's injuries, but that he was likely injured in the park. Anyone with information about the incident is urged to contact Vernon North Okanagan RCMP. Premier David Eby, along with other premiers, pressed the federal government to pass bail reform legislation, which ultimately failed now that Parliament has adjourned for the summer. Keith Baldry joins us with more on this. And Keith, so what does this mean for the chances of the reform bill passing in the fall? Yeah, so we're talking about Bill C-48, Chris. This is a piece of legislation put together after pressure from premiers and justice ministers right across the country to toughen up the bail uh, system, basically to create what's called a reverse onus situation, which puts the onus on repeat violent offenders to show, show why they should get bail rather than on the Crown to show why they shouldn't get bail. The bill was tabled in the House. That's the good news. So it wasn't even called for second reading. That's the earliest uh, form of passage in the, in the Parliament uh, before the Parliament... Uh, adjourned earlier this week. There had been concerns this might have happened, and certainly did. Nevertheless, the Premier expressing his concern and disappointment over what happened. So I'm disappointed, certainly, uh, that the federal government uh, was not able to, despite what I understand to be broad agreement among the parties that this is important, that they support it, that they want this reform to take place, that they weren't able to get this bill passed. I'm assured that they will be introducing or that they will be uh, moving the bill through the various stages in the fall. And, uh, and I just can't underline enough, at least from British Columbia's perspective, that this is a huge priority and, uh, and we need this bill to pass. 
So the bill is not dead. It simply sits on the order paper now for a number of months until Parliament comes back in the fall. Presumably then it'll be called for debate and past the various stages of debate in Parliament. Then it would go to the Senate, so, which means we're still many months away potentially for having the bail system change in this country despite the continued pressure from premiers and justice ministers right across the country. Can't happen soon enough for a lot of frustrated residents. Keith, thanks very yeah. much. All right, now to some breaking news on Vancouver Island. A major route to and from Alberni Valley communities like Port Alberni and Tofino finally reopened ahead of schedule this afternoon after a two-week closure due to the Cameron Bluffs wildfire. Jordan Armstrong joins us now with some of the details. Jordan. Chris, Highway 4 is a critical route, so when word got out it was reopening at 3 p.m., a lineup of vehicles formed at the roadblock. There's a lineup because this is not free-flowing traffic. It's single-lane alternating by Cameron Lake. But after two and a half weeks of a full closure, locals and visitors are thrilled to see it. Since June 6, the only road access has been via a lengthy logging road detour. It's been incredibly tough for businesses and tourism operators. Now, people and supplies are able to get through on the main route to Port Alberni, Euclid, and Tofino. Today, we saw everyone from stranded campers heading home to a pair of newlyweds, the bride still in her wedding gown. We just live on the other side of Little Qualicum Falls, and we were watching the fire get closer and closer to us. Uh, and we're quite relieved when it moved in the other direction, but disappointing that the road has been closed because of all the debris. We were lucky enough, our wedding was at Little Qualicum Falls and they were able to let us through. That park was still open, so went ahead as planned. As for the fire, the Cameron Bluffs blaze is under control, but it created significant slope instability above the narrow winding highway. Concrete barriers and netting are in place to minimize the risk of falling debris. The logging road detour will remain open until Highway 4 fully reopens, which is estimated to be sometime in mid-July. Chris? All right. Kudos to the crews who got it open a day early, though, for sure, at least partially. Thanks very much, Jordan. Now, the owner of one of the businesses heavily damaged by the explosion of an underground B.C. hydro vault in downtown Vancouver in February is speaking out about the hydro CEO's apology yesterday. He wants more corporate accountability. As Kristen Robinson reports, the owner says he's still dealing with hydro over his insurance. Where the plywood is was the glass that got blown out. J.J. Bean's busiest per hour location inside Vancouver's iconic marine building, still a work zone four months after an underground electrical vault blew up outside. B.C. Hydro admitting it was negligent, yet notifying John Neat it looks forward to continuing to work with him and his insurer on his claim. I'd love for them to say we'll cover all the costs. That was probably the most shocking news, that they knew about it. Someone has to be accountable. The February 24th blast and fire injured two people and damaged several businesses. BC Hydro admitted the vault directly underneath J.J. Bean's sidewalk patio was assessed as a high risk in 2016. If not properly maintained or replaced, the result could be severe injury or death. Yet nothing was done until it exploded seven years later. I'd love to find out what the reporting structure is there and why things got slipped through the cracks on something so important that could have caused a number of deaths. Who was in charge and why were they not made aware of how much of a safety issue this was and why were repairs delayed for seven years? Well, we are continuing to review um, 
what happened beyond 2016, um, from 2016 until today, to understand why it wasn't escalated and what actions were taken. We've not concluded that work, and we've not determined exactly what will happen, but or what happened. Were you not deputy CEO, then? Ben, it's your turn, Ben. When asked Friday if any employees had been terminated, BC Hydro told Global News, once the internal review is complete, we'll take appropriate action. It has also hired a third party to review its other underground electrical equipment. If Hydro says there's a hydro vault that will potentially explode and then it gets left for seven years, that's not acceptable. Neat believes the B.C. government should conduct its own third-party review of the Crown Corporation's infrastructure. The minister responsible says she'll be meeting with B.C. Hydro CEO. We take this profoundly seriously, which is why the minister will be reviewing the report to see if there's any other actions the government should be taking. So we're hoping August 15th. J.J. Bean hopes to reopen this summer. B.C. Hydro says it's committing to compensating Neat once an insurance claim is submitted. Kristen Robinson, Global News. It was the deadliest terror attack in Canadian history, launched from right here in B.C. A look back at the Air India tragedy that killed hundreds and how it seems to be fading from our collective memory. That's next on the News Hour. A mission to meditate, the fascinating backstory of a man who performs a chant every day on the steps of the B.C. legislature. That's coming up later on the News Hour. Right now, though, today marks 38 years since the largest mass terrorist attack in Canadian history. The Air India bombings left hundreds dead, most of them Canadians. A memorial for them is set to get underway shortly at Separately Park. Paul Johnson joins us from there right now. And Paul, despite the enormity of this crime, it seems few Canadians really know about it. It's a good question. Uh, this event uh, is going to be getting underway here shortly. This is uh, one of many events, no doubt, taking place across Canada and around the world. But even as organized events like this are happening, some are raising questions about whether Canadians have really given this tragedy its due. Well, it's inconceivable that anyone connected to those who died in Canada's worst terror attack could have forgotten about Air India. It's reasonable to expect that given the scale of the tragedy, most Canadians would know something about it. Or is it? I wonder how many Canadians actually know why we commemorate the National Day for Victims of Terrorism. The Angus Reid Institute's Shachi Curl wanted to test her hunch with some research. What she found appears to be a troubling statement about our collective memory, possibly our education system as well. Nearly 3 in 10 Canadians say they have never heard of the Air India tragedy. Uh, that 60% between the ages of 18 and 34 say they've never heard of it. And only 20% are actually able to correctly identify that event as the deadliest terror attack on Canadian citizens in our history. Even more disappointing, only 20% could identify the Air India bombing as by far Canada's deadliest terror attack. Our informal poll of Vancouverites Friday appeared to back up Curl's numbers. Can anybody tell me what the Air India bombing was? Nope. Uh, no clue. No. Do you know what the Air India bombing was? 
This man was the best informed person we spoke with, but his knowledge came courtesy of YouTube, not from school. And it would appear it's not just Canadian classrooms that are deficient. Did you ever learn about that in school? No. Where did you go to school? India. The book is called Remembering Air India, The Art of Public Mourning. Amber Dean is a professor at McMaster University who worked on a book project about how Air India has been remembered. She has this theory. Deeper question is who is widely imagined as a Canadian citizen? And the first person that's generally imagined as a Canadian citizen is not someone of South Asian heritage, which is what family members have said over and over again. And so I think that's a really uh, significant issue and why the issue, the, this hasn't been remembered as a Canadian tragedy. So I was chatting with Health Minister Adrian Dix just a while ago. He's going to be one of the speakers here. His family actually has a personal connection to the tragedy. And we were talking about the many different dimensions of this that make this so terrible, among them the fact that no one was ever brought to justice, but also a forgotten fact also that there were dozens of children on this plane when it went down because of a bomb. If you haven't been down to Separately Park ever to see this, I would recommend it. This is actually quite a moving memorial. You can see the names of all of the victims inscribed in the stones behind me here. And you don't have to be part of any kind of an organized event. We were down here before people got here and I was setting up and looking how we would set up our shot. And one single family came up very quietly. No one was here. They had one flower. They put it in the wall. It was quite moving. No Chris? doubt a very important part of BC's history. Thanks very much for that, Paul. Paul Johnson reporting for us tonight. Well, it is the first official weekend of summer, but some people will be voting tomorrow in by-elections to choose new MLAs in a pair of B.C. ridings. Langford, Wanda Fuca and Vancouver Mount Pleasant will have new MLAs. As Richard Zussman reports, the outcome might help set the tone for next year's provincial election. This is Joan, she's running in the by-election. It's the final chance to make a pitch in Vancouver Mount Pleasant and the NDP bringing out the big guns. It's an important by-election for an important community. You know, the, the community that Joan is running in includes the downtown east side, includes Chinatown. Premier David Eby campaigning for Joan Phillip hoping to replace former tourism minister Melanie Mark. Philip, an indigenous leader and climate activist, is married to well-known Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. Green, Wendy Hako, BC United candidate Jackie Lee and Conservative Karen Lichke join Philip on the ballot. What I've been hearing on the doorstep is affordable housing, affordability in general, uh, health care and uh, the opioid crisis. On Vancouver Island, voters in Langford, Wanda Fuqua will be voting to replace former Premier John Horgan. Eby, Kevin Falcon and Sonia Firstenau all spent time in the riding with local candidates, with voters choosing between Green, Camille Curry, Conservative Mike Harris, BC United candidates Alina Lawson and NDP frontrunner Ravi Parmar. This government tried to strip away autism funding and we fought hard for a year and a half. I have shown the people that I am a go-getter, that when I see a need, I address a need. Back in 2020, the NDP captured 67% of the vote in Mount Pleasant, followed by the Greens at 20%. In Lankford, Horgan received almost 68%, with Greens in second at nearly 17%. What is new in both ridings is the inclusion of BC Conservatives. We're setting the tone. We'll be running candidates in all 93 ridings in the upcoming election. And it's going to be important for people to know who we are. Yeah.
This is also the first time BC United has its name on the ballot, and experts say this is something to watch. If we see a real decline, for instance, in BC United compared to their, their limited showing in, in the last election in, in either district, that could be an indication that, that they have more work to do to make it clear to voters who they are and what they stand for. Polls are open in both ridings Saturday from 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. Richard Zuspin, Global News. Coming up, loud neighbors impact quality of life. Again, the third day, it was really loud, and then no response to that. How their next-door neighbor's stereo eventually drove them away, but they got the last laugh. And new details about the stricken submarine that imploded on a voyage to the Titanic. Over top of the Alex Razor Bridge, uh, nothing really going on here tonight. After a few earlier problems, it's eased right off and traffic looks great in both directions. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $25 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. High above the Alex Razor Bridge and Global One, I'm Jennifer Lee. It's a problem for anyone who shares a wall with a neighbor. Noise can be very disruptive. A Langley couple says their neighbors were so loud and refused to do anything about it, they had to take action. Aaron MacArthur has the satisfying result. Despite the hard work for Michael and Rakshila Levelton, an afternoon digging in the garden is peaceful compared to their last home. For the better part of six months, the constant drumbeat of a neighbor's loud stereo forced the couple into some drastic action. When it happens multiple times a week, every week. For hours. <laughs> for hours, it kind of, it messes with your head a bit. The Leveltons used to live in this townhome complex. They tried dealing with the noise complaint civilly with their neighbor on a one-to-one -one basis. But he wouldn't turn the knob down, claiming it was a high-end stereo. Left to their own devices, they took their neighbor to court, presenting as evidence documentation of each noise complaint, each text message asking him to turn it down, including one from the neighbor, which said, I can't do anything, to be honest. You and all other neighbors have to get used to this system. And armed with the documentation, filed a claim at the Civil Resolution Tribunal. This week, they discovered they'd won a $3,500 judgment. The adjudicator writing... The respondents were uncooperative and unwilling to turn down the volume of their sound system. It felt, felt really good, I think, for us. It was the, I think it was the most important thing is that just that the win, just that we won, not necessarily the amount. There are hundreds of thousands of strata units in British Columbia and more than a few neighbor disputes that spread from shared walls to the courts. Lawyers say the key to getting a result is to keep meticulous records. You have a right to quiet enjoyment of your space, to use and enjoy your property free from significant interference. Um, strata corporations, by way of their strata councils, landlords, if you're in a rental property, have an obligation to ensure that those rights are protected. The stereo stopped being an issue almost as soon as the Leveltons filed suit. About six months ago, they moved out, but continued to pursue the matter, saying they couldn't sell to someone else without solving this nuisance first. Know your rights, and especially in a strata situation, it's very difficult. The defendant now has 30 days to respond to the court order. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Some new developments in a story we first told you about yesterday, about a bear being shot with a crossbow. It happened on a blueberry farm right next to Minicata Regional Park in Coquitlam. Witnesses told Global News they saw two men shoot the bear. 
The Conservation Service is investigating but couldn't confirm the fate of the animal. The employer of one of the alleged hunters claimed the man had permission from the landowner to hunt bears. But Global News has now been in contact with the son of the farm owner who says the men were trespassing and did not have permission to be there. Alex Bilne adds that they do not condone the hunting of bears. Coming up, troubling details about the Titan sub-tragedy. So Ocean Gate shouldn't have been doing what it was doing. I think that's pretty clear. Why Titanic director James Cameron wishes he spoke up sooner. And many answer the call to volunteer as drivers for cancer patients as a, after a desperate call went out. High above the Massey Tunnel in Global One, we have a stalled dump truck and it is uh, blocking the left and middle lane. Traffic is just squeezing by and heavily backed up on the approach. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $25 million. Lotto Max dreamed to the max. High above the Massey Tunnel in Global One, I'm Jennifer Lee. Canadian vessels are returning home now after searching for that lost submersible off Newfoundland. All five on board died in what the U.S. Coast Guard calls a catastrophic implosion. And now, as Mike Armstrong reports, there are new questions about the vessel's structural integrity. So Ocean Gate shouldn't have been doing what it was doing. I think that's pretty clear. One of the people now speaking out is James Cameron. The director of the Titanic movie has made 33 dives to the wreck. He also built his own submarine. Cameron says he didn't believe in the Titan's carbon fiber hull and regrets not speaking out earlier. It's the Ocean Gate Titanic experience. Look, we celebrate innovation, right? But you shouldn't be using an experimental vehicle for, for paying passengers. The search continues at the site. The U.S. Coast Guard says it's mapping the two debris fields found on the ocean floor. There may now be overlapping investigations. Canada's Transportation Safety Board confirmed Friday it is investigating the Titan tragedy. Also, Global News has learned the TSB is in negotiations with the U.S. Transportation Safety Board and the U.S. Coast Guard over roles and responsibilities. In terms of jurisdiction, it is complicated. The vessel was lost about 680 kilometers from St. John's in international waters. The victims were from four different countries, Pakistan, the U.S., France, and the U.K. And the ship that launched the Titan, the Polar Prince, is Canadian. Add to that the fact something like this tragedy isn't covered by the United Nations Law of the Seas. It covers things like extraction of minerals uh, from the seabed and fishing, but doesn't really cover um, things like submersibles. Treat it like a crime scene. Oceanographer David Gallo hopes there are answers that lead to safer vehicles. This disaster is the first implosion of a submersible with passengers on board. He says it's something the community has feared but expected. We knew that we were lucky to go this long with manned submersibles and not have that kind of an accident. And yet, when it happened, we were all stunned. Like, it ha you know, it happened. Now, TSB investigators are headed here to St. John's, as is the ship that launched the Titan Sunday. The Polar Prince is expected early Saturday morning. Mike Armstrong, Global News, St. John's. In Health Matters tonight, they're a lifeline for people going through a very tough time. Volunteer cancer drivers make sure patients get to their essential treatments at no cost. 
With demand growing, the group needs even more drivers to sign up. Janet Brown reports. Brian Watt is a volunteer driver for cancer patients and he's in White Rock today. I've had the radiation and I got a good result. That's great. He is picking up Patricia Zamet, who is heading off for another chemotherapy treatment, and her husband Joe, who always goes along. After 64 years of marriage, they're seldom apart. Built on Joe? Good. Super. Watt, a retired deputy commissioner with the RCMP, also has cancer, but between his treatments for the disease, finds time to drive other cancer patients to their appointments. I, I love to drive. I love the people that I get to, to meet. Uh, I can communicate with them fairly well. Some of them want to talk about their cancer, and I'm certainly willing to talk about mine. Yeah, yeah, the chemo really takes everything yeah. out of me. I uh, no. No energy. energy. No. A few months ago, the Volunteer Cancer Driver Society began a campaign trying to get 100 new drivers in 100 days, and they're close to meeting that goal, but they always need more. Our forecast this year is for 29,000 trips. Uh, that's about a 5% increase over what we expected last year. Cancer patients in need of our kind of service are going to continue to, to grow with uh, the result of the aging population. All done for another day, right? Okay. Patients don't pay anything and drivers get 55 cents a kilometer. It's a community citizen service that uh, uh, they uh, are responding to. Pat and Joe are thankful for the ride today. Back home, safe and sound. Janet Brown, Global News. And coming up, chanting for mankind. We started seeing Ajo coming on a regular basis. A man on a thousand-day mission to meditate for the benefit of humanity and how staff at the legislature recognized his efforts. And in sports, a statement game from the BC Lions. What they did last night that shocked Bomber fans. Coming up. All right, we're heading into the first full weekend of summer and some unsettled weather rolling across the province today. Christy? Yes, I mean, generally we have beautiful conditions across the province, but we certainly have a number of isolated thunderstorms. Look at the lightning strikes, hundreds of them in just in the last while, and we've seen that through a good part of the afternoon. At one point, we did have a sphere thunderstorm warning in effect with a number of cells near Tumbler Ridge, but those have subsided, and we just have watches in effect at this time. We do have a slight chance of an isolated thunderstorm in the East Fraser Valley as we continue through the next few hours, as well as along the spine of Vancouver Island. Overall, though, things will settle down overnight and we're expecting generally clear skies but there's a little bit of a disturbance right here so don't be surprised if you wake up early tomorrow morning with a few showers across the region but it's not going to last long we are expecting us to return to a mix of sun and cloud you can see it breaking apart but also popping up it's sort of like popcorn popping up across the region in the afternoon and evening hours isolated showers and thunderstorms once again similar to what we're seeing today uh, generally though we oh I wanted to also talk about this uh, we don't have much uh, rain in the forecast for the next seven days, so be really diligent. There's still a campfire ban across Vancouver Island, but there isn't for all of these areas. Be super, super careful. We do not have any rain in the forecast beyond that little bit of a shower activity that I was telling you about for tomorrow morning. Uh, for the next seven days, it looks like we're going to see mostly dry conditions. So quickly, that fire danger rating will begin to skyrocket. Enjoy it, though. Lots of sunshine to enjoy. 21 to 26 degrees across the region. So nice 
nice and warm indeed and as you can see a beautiful five-day forecast with uh, dry conditions and it looks like that will hold right into the early sorry latter part of next week tonight central windows weather window coming to you from, from port melon and i had to use this shot because i don't think i've had an, an entry for port melon before so thank you so much to doug for sharing that with us and it sounds like port melon is the highlight for the small town feature on the morning news tomorrow morning so you'll see lots more of port melon tomorrow morning back to you fantastic doug gets them on the map early and a great <laughs> forecast thanks very much christy well, if you've been to the legislature in Victoria at any point over the past two and a half years, you might have heard this mantra. Every day for the past 1,000 days, Ejo Toyanaga has been meditating on the steps of the legislature. He walks an hour each way from his home in Saanich, earning praise and recognition from politicians and everyone else who works at the legislature. Toyonaga says he meditates for world peace, a desire that stems from his childhood, born at the end of the Second World War. I had experience when a childhood is just end of the Second World War. How it was terrible, miserable. Okay? So I don't, I don't like that the people struggling from the war. So most important thing, the peace. Yeah, but the peace coming from people's heart. So I want everybody write diary to make great memory every day. Congratulations, thank you. Words to live by. And to mark his 1,000th day, staff at the legislature got together to present Toyonaga with a gift, a new pair of running shoes. They'll use those up walking in from Saanich, no doubt about it. Them, yeah. Okay, Squires here looking ahead to uh, sports and thinking about last night and an amazing performance. It was actually an incredible performance. Not many teams win in Winnipeg. I think the last Western team to win there was 2018. The Lions did it last night. They beat the Bombers 30-6. to That was a great performance, but it's too early in the season, the coach says, for the team to get happy with themselves just yet. I like that our guys aren't uh, celebrating too hard. I think they want to get better. The Lions defense has been feasting on everybody. They've allowed only an average of seven points against per game in their first three outings. Great performance. Also coming up tonight, satellite debris. We committed to saving you money. It's early days. You it don't is. want to celebrate too soon, but that was a big win last night. It was a big win. I mean, you got to celebrate those kind of victories. Yeah. But again, it doesn't mean what happens now is going to be happening in November. You would but. like to say that it will, but <laughs> it's not always the case. They just don't hand out the Grey Cup in the summertime. They hand it out when the skies are actually gray in November. But if they did, it would be the Lions holding it right now. Because as the old saying in football goes, Defense is what wins championships. And right now, the Lions' defense is playing at a championship level. We know it's only three games. The season is 18 games long. Bad things can happen between now and the end of the season. But allowing no touchdowns in their last two games and 
One of those games being a 36 victory on the road, I might add, in Winnipeg last night is very impressive. Kolaris stepping up and gets taken down by Sione Tehama. Even though it's only week three, the Lions made a statement that was heard loud and clear throughout the entire CFL. They went into Winnipeg, where the Bombers had won 29 of their last 31 games and soundly thumped them by 24 points. And it was the defense that led the way, with seven sacks against reigning MVP Zach Kolaros in what was a display of physical dominance. I've never been part of something like that, where everybody gets to contribute, honestly, and it feels so good because everybody feels part of, feels part of the team, everybody contributes, so I mean, it's... I love it for everybody. Everybody gets to eat, so I mean, I, I think that's uh, that's a that's our trademark, and hopefully, we keep doing that. Also impressive, the way the Lions handled key moments in the game. Late in the half, the defense held the Bombers to a field goal, and the offense, in turn, marched the field and scored a touchdown in the final seconds of the half. It was an 11-point swing and really sent a message the Lions meant business. Yeah, they were trying to get the momentum and get back in it, and our guys just wouldn't let them, and we always came up with the plays when we needed them. So. Uh, my, my favorite part about it as a coach is I thought it was a total team effort, offense, defense, and special teams. Ryan Phillips' defense has been beyond impressive. Just one touchdown allowed in three games and 21 total points surrendered. And they're getting key plays from pretty much everyone, many of them Canadians. As this unit has shown, they are the best in the league right now. It's easier when you get to trust the guys around you. You know where they'll be. I, I mean, I saw it day one of training camp. We pretty much picked up right where we left off last year. And I mean, it, it was nice to see. I think we had a lot of guys who had success on the line. I mean, Cherry had his first sack, Nard had his first sack this year. I'm really proud of the group, really proud of the guys. Uh, so yeah, it's, it feels good. Our defense for the second week in a row doesn't give up a touchdown. Um, they're lights out, man. Those guys, I'm so proud of those guys, man. They work so hard. They, they push us in practice. Lions have another tough road test coming up when they visit the defending Grey Cup champion Argos a week from Monday in Toronto. Very delayed global sports. You're right, keeping the score low and in the CFL sometimes it's like a basketball game, there's so much scoring, but not when the Lions have been out there. Well, the Vancouver Canucks have announced their preseason schedule. It'll feature six games against teams from their division. One of the home games will be against Seattle and that will be played in Abbotsford. Here is the list, basically. It's a home-and-home home series with the Oilers, the Flames, and the Kraken. The first three games are on the road. Then the next three are at home. And as we said, that game against Seattle will be played in Abbotsford, which is a, a nice tradition, playing at least one exhibition game down in Abbey. We have learned that uh, the late Gino Ojik had been diagnosed with CTE. Doctors had been testing Gino before his passing because of numerous headaches. Tomorrow on the morning show in the 9 o'clock hour, Jay Janauer will speak with Gino's best friend, Peter Leach, who will shed more light on what Gino was going through before his passing. Well, after surviving four hours sitting in a locker room, waiting out a storm that wouldn't end in Colorado, the Vancouver Whitecaps are now in the much nicer climate of Los Angeles. But that's all that's nice about it because the Whitecaps are there to face LAFC, one of the best teams in MLS. Of course, they dismantled Vancouver rather handily in the Champions League earlier this year, a two-game series. It was all LAFC. Now, Vancouver will play tomorrow's game without Julian Gresso and without Ali Ahmed, who are both in the CONCACAF Gold Cup. 
But Vanni Sartini says LAFC will miss players because of that as well. I think that we, we have to be uh, ready to go and we don't have to be scared. I think it's a place, uh, uh, BMO Stadium, that uh, if you go there and uh, you, you're scared and you just try to defend, then you play in your box for 90 minutes and then the end you lose with the quality that they have. So we need to, I think we need to be as aggressive and as offensive as we can and even, I would say, the lineup that I have in mind will, uh, will feature a lot of offensive players. We talked about the Canucks exhibition schedule. The BCHL has announced its entire schedule for the 23-24 season. It's going to start on September 22nd. The regular season will go until March 31st. And then the playoffs will start April 5th, which seems like a long time from now. It does, doesn't it? All right. You know what's not a long time from now? Satellite debris. That's, That's coming, it's coming up next. All right, here's our man, Squire Barnes, ready to end the week off well with satellite debris. Yes, and up first is a commercial about pitching a commercial for Go Compare. It's a car insurance firm.com. <laughs> Guys, hi. I've got a minute. Me? Right, I've got a new song for our customers. I call it Committed to You. We're committed to saving you money. And dedicated to saving you time. It's got chills. Nailed it, man. Is it him? I mean, we're not a double act or anything. Excuse That doesn't even work, look. It's not even a proper piano, it's tiny. Hello. <laughs> okay, I take the hint. The singing was annoying. So, I found a new way to tell people how much money they could save on their car insurance. And there he is. Um, wow. In an ideal world, he'll be knocking out the theme tune. Oh, he can play? Well, he can't play yet. Ah. I've just got him. But I think if I put the bits of sausage on the right notes, we could be in business. <laughs> I've heard bits that before when people are trying to pitch right something. Here. In an ideal world, this might work. That's right. Um, okay, so this one, uh, well, oh, people who have electric cars, like yourself, Chris, will mm -hmm. recognize this. So here we go. I'm all ears. All right.
dangerous. It took me a long time to figure out what was going on there. <laughs> I'm yeah, when I first saw it, it, I agree with you, Christy. I didn't quite know what was going on. But hey, if a guy has a blower and he's going up in the air, he's making the show. It's uh, a lot of power. Okay, so last but not least, bit of dark humor to start out with. A couple of bears uh, and a Twix candy bar. And also uh, Rob McElhenney and, um, well, our old friend. Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. Our old friend Ryan Reynolds. And that'll come up. You know? It doesn't matter if you choose left or right, because they're both chewy, crunchy, and delicious. You know, it doesn't matter if you choose left or right, because they're both chewy, crunchy, and delicious. You know what else I like? No, what? The sound of the snap. When you bite into it. Here at the world-famous race course in Wrexham, tea time for the Red Dragons is as cherished a tradition as anywhere in the United Kingdom. But today, we are announcing Stoke Cold Brew Coffee as our official sponsor of the race course. So we're secretly replacing the team's afternoon tea with bold, smooth Stoke. Let's see if they notice. Coffee and tea time. Shambles. I think they noticed. Yeah. Real sticklers for tradition over here, huh? Mm. They don't know what they're missing. Mm -hmm. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee, official stadium sponsor of Wrexham AFC. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for watching. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.